Well, what a blessing to worship with you all. It's always a joy to hear everyone singing behind me. It makes it easier for me to preach, too, to have you helping me, encouraging me, getting me ready through the Spirit's work to preach. And we were blessed by that special song as well with Josie and Selena. Thank you. And that was a joy. Today is traditionally called Palm Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey and they, they laid down the blankets, they laid down and wave the palm fronds. And I hope you'll join us on Friday night. I want to go through the Passion Week, what's usually called the Passion Week, and look at Monday through Friday in the life of Christ during that last week and cover the events leading up to the cross. So I hope you'll, you'll join us there on Friday at 7 for that study. Well, today we're in the book of Romans again, as you guessed it, Romans chapter 2. We are looking here at Paul's letter about the gospel. He's going to open up the gospel. He's going to give us the theology of the gospel in the letter to the Romans. And the Apostle Paul has been appointed. He's been sent by Christ to deliver this message through writing. He's going to come in person. He's going to teach them. But he wants to send this letter beforehand. And he is very excited about doing that. He's already told us in chapter 1 that he longs to be with the Romans. But he can't be there because of the providence of God. And so while he's waiting, he's, he's put all this theology of the gospel in the letter. And he starts by just telling us in chapter 1, he's not ashamed of the gospel. A lot of people are ashamed of the gospel in those days and even today. They don't like it. But Paul says, I'm, I'm not ashamed because it's the only thing that can save. It's the only power of God that is going to save you. And the way that happens is God reveals the righteousness that we need, the righteousness of God. He reveals it through the gospel. It comes to us, in other words, through Christ. And if we have faith in Him, we receive that. He told us that in 117. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So He's established a foundation. He said, to be saved, it's got to come from God. He's the only one that can do it. It's His power. It's faith alone, in Christ alone, that we receive the righteousness from God. The righteousness that Christ earned living a perfect life. There's no way we could do it. Paul says right away, and that's really 118 through 321. We're all sinners. All of us. We are all sinners. But before he even gets into that, he reminds us Christ lived a perfect life. That's what he means by the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And if we want that righteousness, we must have faith in Christ. Now, why is that important? Well, because Christ's righteousness comes to the gospel, but those who haven't heard the gospel, the Gentiles, they're getting God's wrath revealed to them. They're under his wrath. And then chapter 2, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews as well. Even though they have the Bible, even though they should know something about the Messiah, even though they should believe in Jesus Christ, they refuse. And Paul says, they're not. They are not going to escape God's wrath. Because God will judge the Gentile that's not saved and the Jew that's not saved in the same way. So that's where we're at in chapter 2 this morning. We're going to look at 2, 5 through 11. 2, 5 through 11. 2, 1 through 4, Paul's already said, look, you're not going to escape. You practice sins too. You, you Jewish people practice sins, he says. And this is the, the modern day Christian who goes to church but isn't actually born again. 
isn't saved, their heart's not been changed. And they, they look down their noses at other people. And Paul says, you practice sins too. You'll be judged. You'll be judged too. So we pick up here in Romans 2. I want to read 5 through 11 here. Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay to each according to his works. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and anger. There will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. This is God's word. We have to seek to understand what Paul's saying here. We have to put it in the context of the whole book. And when it comes down to it, what he's saying is there's going to be a great divide on the day of God's wrath. On the day of judgment, there's going to be two groups. There's going to be a great divide. We can't see it today. We can't always see it. We don't know all the time who's saved and who's not. Sometimes people say they are and they surprise us. But someday it will be clear. It will be clear. There's going to be two groups divided. I was thinking of of how to illustrate this. And I thought of so many times uh, growing up where... I thought I knew something, but it turns out I didn't. And it, it, the silliest things, like going fishing with my grandma. And for the first time, we would you know, throw the line into the muddy river and think I had the biggest fish ever. This big catfish, because that's what my grandma liked. It was an alligator gar. The thing would you know, shred your hands if you put it in its mouth. I had no idea what I had on the line until it was reeled in. And then I thought about my days in sports. And you never knew what kind of player you were lined up against in football. It might be huge. But then sit there and roll over backwards and let you run right over him. You didn't know until the, until the whistle started, until the game started, to the first snap. In politics, sometimes we think a candidate is going to be the best candidate since Julius Caesar. And instead, it turns out to be a person that completely goes the opposite way. You don't know until much later. Things aren't always so clear when we start out. Well, that's what Paul is trying to get this Jew to wake up to. He's saying, look, those are people who profess to be saved because they're Jews. But in the day of judgment, they're going to be shown not to be saved at all. They will know. And they already know, Paul says. But everyone will know at that point. Well, let's look at 2, 5 through 11. We started this passage last week. Didn't get through all the text, but I'm just going to have them put the whole outline up here on the screen. Because we're right in the middle we're right in the middle here of Paul's argument. His main point is that there's going to be this great divide in the day of God's wrath. And we looked, first of all, at the self-righteous unbeliever who stores up wrath. This self-righteous unbeliever, this person who knows the Bible and they think they know God and they think they're safe and they are living what they consider an outwardly moral life. And yet, Paul says they're actually hard-hearted. He said they're stubborn. You see that in verse 5? They're stubborn. They're hard. Their heart is hardened. Like Israel in the Old Testament. And they're unrepentant. They don't want to repent and acknowledge their sin and follow after the Messiah. 
So Paul says they're continuing to store up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. And we looked at how that hardened person is, is hard towards God. They continue in their sin. And, it, and it's like this lake of wrath being built up. And God's patience is the dam. And he keeps that wrath at bay until the day of judgment. And then the dam comes down and all that wrath that's been stored up, all those good works they thought they were doing, but they were actually selfish, evil works, that's God's wrath being stored up because of all of that. And it will come and flood and sweep the unbeliever into hell forever. God's wrath will be proportionate, in other words, to the hardness and the hardness of the person's heart. And then the second main point in this passage, which we were sort of in the middle of this argument last week, the self-righteous unbeliever will be judged based on works. They'll be judged based on works. That's the point Paul's trying to get across. Yes, he talks about believers in the middle of that. But the main point that he's trying to get across is that if you're self-righteous, if you think you're saved, but you're actually not, it'll be clear because it'll be based on works. The judgment will be based on works. And so I had three sub-points there for you. First of all, judgment is individual. And we spoke last week about how it's going to come to each person. And no one's going to escape that. Each person will stand before the Lord. For the person today, this means you can't have your parents stand in your place. You can't have your pastor, your elder stand in your place. You can't say, look at how good of a church I was. Let them stand in my place. You can't say, you know, it's, it's my dad who was a pastor or a deacon or an elder. It's your life. No one else's. And you have to stand before the Lord. Now, there's a difference in those who stand before the Lord with Christ in them, with Christ next to their side. But Paul's not going into that right now. He will in chapter 3. Right now, he's focused on the self-righteous unbeliever. And he's saying, look, everyone will stand before the Lord. Then he said that judgment will be based on evidence. It's evidential. It's not just individual, each person. But it's evidential. It's based on evidence. That's his whole point, really, in 6 through 10. God's judgment is perfectly righteous, and it's based on the truth. He'll just simply look at the works. He'll just simply look at the works and say, there it is. Not that God doesn't know all things. Not that God doesn't know the heart. But it clearly says, God will repay, in verse 6, to each according to his works. That's how God determines the outcome. You might think of it as, how does a person come before God and show their works? Well, God has has them all recorded. God has them all in his mind at all times. God knows. The, the Bible talks about books being opened even. And so there, there is going to be a record. I don't know if that's going to be played before our eyes. People have envisioned this in different ways. But God knows everything we've ever done. Everything. And Paul says, God will repay. Repay. The idea is payment here. In other words, you come before God and he will look at your works and he will give a payment. He will give a payment according to what you have done. According to. Notice that. That's based on the standard. Your life will be looked at. And your reward or punishment will be exactly matched up to your works. God is fair. He is righteous. Paul says this over and over in this passage. He's a righteous judge. He will not give to anyone anything that they do not deserve. He's very clear. So he goes into verse 4, talking about one group. to those, Verse 7, sorry, talking about one group. To those who by perseverance in doing good 
seek for glory and honor and immortality. But who seeks for glory? Who seeks for the glory of God? Who, who seeks to be glorified in their body forever so that they might be with God because they love Him? Who perseveres in doing good? Who seeks honor and immortality? This is the believer. This is the believer. Now, he's not putting that all in here for us to see at this moment because, again, his focus is on the unbeliever. But if you look at all of Scripture and even later in Romans, you realize this is the believer. This is the follower of Christ. This is the one who is seeking for God's glory and honor and wants to live with God forever. They will receive eternal life. And so we looked at that last week and we, we considered this idea of being judged according to works, but being justified on the basis of Christ's work. You see, there's a difference. Justified, being saved through faith alone and Christ alone is what Paul teaches from the beginning of Romans until the end. And then when we come before God, if you're a believer, which he's talking about in verse 7, then he will look at our works, our good works, and reward us because of those good works that we did for his glory. Now, you might say, who am I as a Christian? We looked at this idea. Who am I to do any kind of good works? Well, the Bible says you are a new creation. You are somebody who is united with Christ and you can do good works. In fact, it calls us to do good works over and over. But again, in Philippians 2, Ephesians 2, it clearly says that's God working in us. That's God working in us to do a good work. And he's even prepared them beforehand. So there's no contradiction in Scripture. We are justified through faith alone in Christ alone. And we are repaid at the judgment according to our works. For the believer, that's rewards in heaven. And for the unbeliever, that's punishments in hell forever and ever. That's what we're looking at today. Picking up in verse 8. We're right in the middle of this argument Paul's making. That God's just going to look at the fruit. He's going to look at the evidence. Verse 8, but to those who are selfishly ambitious. Those who are selfishly ambitious. This is their motive. This is why they do the works that they do. They're looking out for self. They're ambitious. They have a desire. They want things. They want power. And so they don't produce fruit in their life that is for God's glory. They're not looking for the honor and glory of God. They're not thinking about spending eternity with God, they're producing bad fruit, bad fruit from their selfish, ambitious hearts. This Greek word here for selfish ambition also carries with it a sense of strife, of, of quarreling. The person's motivated by gaining something and they're willing to quarrel to get it. And Paul's saying, this is the Jews of his day. Sometimes we see people in churches trying to gain something, to be selfish, to be ambitious. They quarrel. Read First and Second Timothy. Read Titus. I mean, you get the sense that these newer churches in those letters Paul writes are struggling with many quarrelers. People who are just striving to gain something, whether it's money, whether it's fame, whether it's power. They're quarreling all the time. Paul even says... About the Corinthians, he goes in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. 
In other words, I'm going to come to the church and check things out because this is not looking well for you. And I don't think you're going to like what I have to say. And I'm not going to like what you are saying and doing in that church. And he goes on to describe that. He says that perhaps there will be strife. That's the same word as we see right here in our passage in, in Romans 2.8. Strife, selfish ambition. He says jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. Paul's whole issue there is that the world has come into the church, you Corinthians. I don't want to find that when I get there. Because that categorizes an unbelieving heart. That's what the world does. And so he's telling the Jews here in Romans 2, the Jews that might be listening as this letter is read in the church. They might come for a Christian service. Hey, my friend just got converted. I'm going to go. They might read this letter and get a copy of it. And he's saying, look, oh man, you, you Jewish moralist. Don't you know? Uh, don't you know that you're selfishly ambitious? And you do not, he continues, you do not obey the truth, but you obey unrighteousness. Now, he's talking about the word of God. The obedience of the truth is the word of God, obeying what God's word says. Jesus is very clear. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And Paul says, you don't obey the truth. You know the Bible. You have the Bible. And you don't obey it. Now, he could have just stopped right there, but he's going to keep on with his argument. He is like an attorney just laying out Prosecuting attorney laying out all this evidence. You sin just like the Gentiles. You disrespect God's goodness and kindness. That should lead you to repentance. But you're stubborn and hard-hearted. So you store up wrath. You don't even think about other people. You're selfish with your ambitions. And you don't even obey the word of God that you hold precious. You don't obey the truth, but you disobey. You disobey in unrighteousness you're obeying yeah you're obeying your unrighteous heart obedience to god's an essential mark it's an essential mark if a person loves jesus christ and they're trusting on the promises that are in scripture about the gospel and the hope and all that christ has promised you will see fruit in their life you will see fruit and that fruit looks like obedience Sometimes we get so wrapped up as Christians saying, well, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. That's right. But how many times do you see that over and over in Scripture? Versus obey this command. Live like I tell you. Fulfill my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's what we see. We see one brief moment where Paul says, I'm not perfect yet, but I am striving. And that's it. So many times the Bible encourages us to obey. Because as Christians, we want to obey our Lord. We want to please Him. Paul says, not for the moralist, not for the self-righteous. They have the word, but they disobey it. Like so many American church attenders, they disobey it. The commentator William Shedd says, the persons spoken of here do not follow after the truth for the truth's sake but from selfish and partisan motives, and there is consequently no true obedience. This is contrary to the perseverance we saw in verse 7, he says. In verse 7, they're persevering, they're striving, they're working for the Lord to produce good fruit. But here in verse 8, they're working for themselves. They think they're doing something to earn their salvation, but they're actually just being disobedient to the truth. 
And so here's what they get. You notice there's not really even a verb. If you have a, a literal translation here, it just tells you what they get after the comma. In verse 7, the person who's seeking for God's glory and honor and the immortality of their bodies, they will get eternal life. But at the end here of verse 8, the person who's selfishly ambitious, who does not obey the truth, but obeys unrighteousness, they get what? Wrath and anger. God's wrath and anger. When the Bible tells you that you're going to receive that, you should be fearful. If you fit the category that he's talking about here, you should be very fearful. Wrath. God's wrath and anger. The wrath, the Greek word is orge. And it's strong indignation directing, directed at wrongdoing. The focus is on retribution. God is going to pay back for the sins against him. Now, God's an eternal God. He is eternal. How can you pay back anything to God if he's eternal? That's why just one sin demands eternity and hell. Some people have, have asked me in the past, you know, and I've seen this elsewhere too. Pastor, why does one sin mean eternity and hell? Because it's against an eternal God. It's against an eternal God. You can't ever pay for that because he has told you not to do it. You've sinned against him and he is eternal. Then Paul says anger as well. These are combined. Wrath and anger. A state of intense displeasure. Anger, fury. The, the idea here is something turbulent, boiling, agitation. God is going to bring wrath and anger to those who do not obey. To those who do not have Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. That's a scary place to be. It's a scary place to be. And Paul said, that's why we need the gospel. His whole argument here is, that's why we need the gospel. You've got the Gentiles who follow their own ways and worship idols. And then you've got the Jews, the moralists, who, who think they're already going to escape God's wrath. You know, they're born a Jew. They'll be fine. Oh, think about the wrath that's going to come on unbelievers who trusted in themselves for salvation. Think about that. Claim to be God's people. The Jews did. They claim to show their works. They thought they could obey all of these laws and put on these garments and do all these things. They did not have Christ in them. They weren't actually producing good works for God's honor and glory. They were just showing off to other people. Jesus talks about how they would go into the streets and, and, and say loudly, you know, listen to me, look at me, pray, look at me fast. They were attracting attention to themselves. They weren't pointing to God. And as a result, they received God's wrath stored up for them. And then in verse 9, he tells us what the consequence, what's the result of this? God's going to bring his wrath. He's going to bring his fury. And where will they end up? There will be affliction. And turmoil, affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil. If, if wrath and anger wasn't enough, now we have this affliction and turmoil. Affliction means trouble that inflicts distress, oppression, tribulation. One commentator says it's a strong word with a meaning like pressure to the point of breaking. It is thus used of dire calamity. What's going to happen to those who disobey, to those who aren't truly born again, they're going to end up in this state of constant affliction, a pressure to the point of breaking. It's the Greek word often used in Scripture to speak of the great tribulation which will come upon the whole earth. You think about all of these things that will happen 
at the end times when the earth is judged physically. And that is the kind of tribulation that each individual will experience after they've been judged. If they're not in Christ, if they're not in Christ, Paul says, that's what he's getting at here. But here, this, this word, the idea is a payment to the unbeliever. Think about it. It's the payment that they get for doing what they've done. So these words, affliction, and then you have turmoil, a set of stressful circumstances, difficulty, anguish, trouble. The idea is being cramped in a small space, and it's just shrinking and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the all sides are pressing in. Listen to the terminology that Paul is using here. Wrath, anger, affliction, turmoil. He's describing hell. He's describing what other parts of the Bible call hell or Gehenna or Hades. A place of eternal torment. It's just a short description of the pains of hell, which the Jew would have known. They would have known from the Old Testament. Let's look at one of these instances in the New Testament, Luke 16.24, to give you an idea of what this is like. Here we have this rich man who said he was a Jew. He didn't expect to go to Hades. He didn't expect to go to this place after he died. He thought he was blessed by God because he had money. But there was one thing that he continued to do that was sinful. He ignored the man right outside of his doorsteps that was wasting away and even was being licked by the dogs. The sores were just so bad on him, the dogs would come up and lick his sores. Luke 16, 24, we pick up with this teaching here of Jesus. And he says, and this rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, because he's a Jew. He thinks, well, I'm of Abraham's descendants. I'm the seed of Abraham. Maybe Abraham can help me now that I'm here, now that I'm in Hades. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, this was the poor man who had no food and was wasting away, dying at his doorstep. Send Lazarus so that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. There's that idea of turmoil, affliction, there's agony. Now, some take this as a, a parable, and some take this as an actual account that Jesus is describing. But either way, it's describing something very painful, very agonizing. This is Hades. This is Hades, the, the, the place where people go who are not saved in Christ the moment after they die. Well, Father Abraham does not have mercy on him because the, the, Jesus says he couldn't even cross this chasm if he wanted to, but he's not because the rich man had his time. He had his blessings. And what did he do with it? See, he doesn't say, what's in your heart, rich man? What did you tell your mom when she asked if you were a believer? No. Jesus says, you could see it. There was no fruit. There was no fruit in his life. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here. That poor man named Lazarus, not, not the one Jesus raised from the dead, but a different one. He's being comforted in heaven. But you're in agony. You're in agony. See, that's the point. Why did the rich man suffer? Because God put an opportunity right there to test to see if he would do a good thing for God's glory, and he didn't. He didn't even help one of his own people. The most obvious thing you can do. But here's the point. This man died, and he went straight to Hades to suffer. There's no soul sleep. 
like Seventh-day Adventists teach. There's no soul sleep like Jehovah's Witnesses teach. There is a conscious torment of the soul immediately after death. Now, according to Jesus, that's according to Jesus' own inerrant word. His soul continues after death and is being tormented in a conscious state. You know, many people say today, hell's not real. They'll say hell's not real, but there it is in Scripture over and over. And every man knows that there is a God. Every woman knows that there is a God and that we should honor and thank him. And yet, if we don't, if we don't, we will go to hell eternally. Some say, well, hell's only temporary. That's called annihilationism. That it's only temporary. People will go for a time. They'll suffer for a short time. And then they'll just be wiped out of existence. The problem with that is the Bible says that it's going to last forever and ever. It's eternal. Jesus says that in his own words, which we'll look at in a moment. Paul says that in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, Gentiles, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jews, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Not that they will actually be destroyed, because it's eternal. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the power of from the glory of his power. It's an eternal destruction. If you ever ponder, if you ever think as a, as a believer, just think about those who are suffering right now in Hades. And think about in the future what that will look like for them forever and ever. That'll encourage you to do some evangelism right there. That'll encourage you to tell your kids. It's not the only thing that we say. We don't just talk about hell, of course. People don't want to hear that today. But it is an important aspect. Jesus spoke of hell over a hundred times in his teaching. That's not even to count all the times that the apostles did so in his name. Well, then after that period of Hades, there comes a time when Christ returns. He reigns for a thousand years. Then the resurrection of unbelievers occurs where they're brought before him. Go to Revelation 20 and we're going to see once again the great white throne judgment. And I think this is what Paul has in mind because this is when the works are considered. Revelation 20 and verse 11. We see this throne set up and it's clearly a judgment throne. By the way, I'm reading all my scripture reading now and probably in the foreseeable future from the Legacy Standard Bible. I do think it's the, the best uh, literal translation out right now. So I'm transitioning as much as I can to using it in my preaching and teaching. Just in case you're not able sometimes to know what I'm reading out of. Revelation 20, 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then he talks about the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books are opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. There it is again. It's according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which is in it. And in death, and Hades gave up the dead. So Hades, the place of hell right now, there's going to be a resurrection. They'll get a body. It's not just the soul now suffering, but they're going to get a resurrected body, just like believers get a resurrected body. And it says what? They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name's not found written in the book of life, meaning that they're not saved, meaning they're not someone that God has elected, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the eternal 
place, the eternal hell. In English, we just say hell covers Hades, covers this eternal lake of fire, what Jesus calls Gehenna. It is the eternal torment, a conscious, physical, and spiritual torment forever and ever. This turmoil and affliction Paul talks about, a place Jesus said is outer darkness. Yet he also said it has unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. He's not just giving illustrations and metaphors. It's going to be that bad. And if, even if he is giving a metaphor there with unquenchable fire, it'll be worse. It'll be worse. Because he's not going to give us a metaphor that makes it sound worse, but it's actually not. I think he's just speaking literally. There's fire. There's darkness. You're separated from God. There's, there's affliction, Paul says. There's turmoil. And if we go back to Paul's argument here in Romans 2, every soul, soul just standing for person here, not, not, not the soul separated from the body. Of course, that will happen. But at this final resurrection, it's going to be soul and body. Soul is often used in the Bible to stand for the whole person. Every individual person will stand before God. And it will be judged according to their works. Now look, he says, every soul that does what? Works out evil. He's very clear here. He works out evil. He practices sin. He lives a life of sin. Not he's a Christian and he's following the Lord and he's striving for holiness. And today he stumbled and he fell and he repented immediately and he came before the Lord and he loves Jesus and he loves the church and he's serving. That's not who he's talking about. He's real clear, works out evil. Works out evil. For those of you who have a job, you go to work. That's your work. You do it a lot, don't you? You do it most of the day. You do it most of the week. Most of your life, we are working. Whenever you go play golf and you go hit a few golf balls out here for 10 minutes, no one says that's your work because you did it for 10 minutes. The idea is something you're doing for work, you're doing a lot of it and you're striving at it. And that's the idea here. People are working out evil. This is the person in 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him. You see, even in John's day, there's this idea that Christians are saying, I'm, I'm saved. I have fellowship with God. Here's what John says. If we say that and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's about your walk. It's about your life. If you say one thing but do something else, they don't match up. 1 John 3.8. Here's another example of working out evil. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Practices. Not the one who slips up and sins sometimes as a believer. Practices, lives out, does it as a practice throughout their life. What does he say? They're of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. A person is not living a complete lifestyle of sin if they're in Christ. Now, there might be Christians who backslide. We all know that. Maybe that was some of us at some point. But they come back. This is somebody who practices sin as a lifestyle. Now, go back to his argument here in Romans 2. So he's, he's described what's going to happen, what this person is like. There's someone who says that they're gods, but they're working out evil. They say we're we're Jews. We're part of Abraham's descendants. But they're selfish. They're ambitious for their own desires. And he says this judgment is going to come of the Jew first and also the Greek. 
Israel was first to receive the gospel. They were first. Remember when Jesus came, what did he say? I came for the nation of Israel. These are my sheep. And even the Gentiles who begged him, he would tell them that. And then, of course, he saved, we know, some Gentiles as well. But the apostles took that out, that gospel to the Gentile world. Well, just like they got the gospel first, they get the judgment first. They were the first to receive the word of God. They're the first to be judged according to their works. They will be held responsible for what they know. They'll be held responsible. The more you know, the more you know, the more Jesus says you're responsible for everyone. Believer or unbeliever, the more you know, the more you're responsible for. That doesn't mean you need to stop learning. doesn't mean you need to sleep and stay home on Sunday morning. We need to study the Bible and grow, but just realize the more you learn, the more he holds us responsible to put that into practice. Well, the Jew is held responsible first, but also the Greek. That's the Gentile. The Greek is the Gentile world. They will be judged as well. No one, no one gets off the hook. And in fact, the Jews get to the front of the line, he says. Being raised in a Christian home doesn't matter today. Saying that your parents were Christian. You went, to, you went to camp, you went to church when you were young. You think you were saved in the womb? You'd be like John the Baptist, I guess. But God says, look, you will live it out. You will practice that. And none of this talk about what happened when you were growing up, it's how you live that will show the fruit. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 7. And this, this lines up perfectly with Paul's theology here in Romans. We would expect that. Go to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 14. One of the scariest passages in the Bible. Matthew seven fourteen, And we see this idea here of Jesus having people come and say, We are yours, Jesus. Don't you know that? Let's just start back in 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So there are few who actually find it, who, who follow Christ. And then he says, beware of false prophets. False prophets are going to come to you in sheep's clothing. They're going to look like Christians. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You need to be discerning, he's saying. Be discerning. How do you know them? If they look just like a wolf, I mean, just like a sheep, the wolves look just like sheep, how do you know them? You will know them by their fruits. Not the way they look, not the way they talk, but their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. That's why I think Paul's talking about this in Romans 2. Good tree person who's saved, a real sheep, bears good fruit. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Talking about hell, talking about eternal fire here. So then you will know them by their fruits. And now here it is. Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. He's not saying you're saved by your works. He's saying the person who's saved will show it by their works. It's not what they say. They're saying a lot right here. Lord, Lord. And he says, it's the one who does the will. 
of my father. Not the one who says to me, oh, Lord, I love you. But it's the one who shows good fruit. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many miracles. On the day of judgment, people will stand before Christ and they will list all these things they did. And they will say, I did this for you. Some of these are even seem to be miraculous things. Look, Jesus, I did this for you. I did this for you. It's so convincing. Most of us would probably think for sure these people are saved, but not Jesus. What does he say, though? He doesn't say he saw into their heart, which we know he does. It tells us in the gospel accounts that he knew every man's heart. That's not how he says it, though. Verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You were never mine. You're not saved. I never knew you. Notice how he describes them. He says, depart from me. You who practice, there's that word, practice, live out, lifestyle, practice what? Lawlessness, disobedience. They did not obey the word of God. In other words, how did he know? Well, he knew their hearts. He knows all things. He's the son of God, of course. But he points out this fact that they did not practice. They did not live according to God's word. Their fruit told everyone all they needed to know. So here is Jesus saying, look, just like Paul does, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves to see. Do you not recognize, Paul says this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. We've got to examine ourselves. We do that every Lord's Supper. We warn the whole congregation. We warn ourselves. Examine your own heart. Are you living out a Christian life? Not did you sin when you raised your voice at your wife this morning. That's not why you don't take the Lord's Supper. You don't take it because you're convicted that you might not even be saved because you've been living such a sinful life. Then you let it pass. And Jesus says these people claimed him. That's a scary verse. They claimed him. They thought, they thought themselves they were Christians. But they thought wrongly. They had a depraved mind like Paul has described to us in Romans 1. And they will receive eternal wrath because they did it for themselves. They didn't really do it for Jesus. If they loved Jesus, they would not have practiced lawlessness. Well, verse 10, now he turns it around again and talks about the believers. So he's, he's made right in the center of the argument here. He's made a big point about the unbelievers being judged according to the works. They will receive wrath. But, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good. I don't think this is hypothetical. He's not saying no one can do good. So just, just trust in Christ. Yes, we know that. And he's going to get to plenty of that in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 4. But once a person saved, they can do good works. That's the good fruit Jesus was talking about. And so in contrast to that judgment, they're going to receive something. They're going to receive glory and honor and peace. They're seeking that. That's what he said in verse 7. They're, they're longing for that. The only change here is he's taken out immortality and put in the word peace. The idea of shalom. Eternal peace with God, which we get with immortality. They will get that. There's only two groups here. 7 and 10 make up the one group, the believer. 8 and 9 make up the unbeliever. Right in the center of this chiastic, what's called chiasm in Greek. Right in the center of that argument. He's hitting the unbelieving moralist, the self-righteous person. He's hitting them right in the spiritual gut. God's a righteous judge. He will repay everyone according to their deeds. The believer? 
The believer has done good deeds because they had Christ. She had Christ. She did things for the Lord. And God said, he will reward them. This is Paul's idea. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I fought the good fight. He's at the end of his life. He's looking back. He tells Timothy, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's not talking about work salvation. He's saying, look, I've kept the faith in Christ. I've done my duty. And I know in the future there's a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, same terminology in Romans here, righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Sometimes Christians get really worked up thinking that there's no rewards in heaven. There, there are rewards in heaven. It's not our main focus. Our main focus is Christ. But Christ talks about rewards. He talks about awards that are given in heaven when he comes back. Just little encouragements along the way. But our main focus is to focus on him. But he says there's going to be rewards. There's going to be something for you to do in heaven forever and ever. You're not on the cloud playing a harp or playing golf forever in heaven. You're on a real earth with a resurrected body and it's been remade and you're given a task to do. And I think that's going to be a big part of your reward. This also comes to the Jew first and to the Greek. Just like the unbelieving Jew will be the first to be judged and sent to hell, the believing Jew will be the first to be rewarded with glory. You can imagine the apostles being at the front of the line. Well, lastly, in verse 11, he says judgment will be impartial. It will be impartial. This is the last part. He just sums up everything he's already said in a few words. For there is no partiality with God. There's none. That's, that's the reason we know each individual person will be judged fairly and rightly. Sometimes we say, well, that's not fair. You hear a lot of so-called American Christians saying, that's not fair what, the way that God judges. We need to throw this idea of God's fairness out the window. And whatever the Bible says, that defines God. That defines how we ought to think about God. We don't get to insert our thoughts into the Bible. That's not fair. Paul has something to say about that kind of attitude in Romans 8 and 9. We'll come to it. But the Bible defines how we should think about God. We don't get to define God in our own minds. It's completely fair because he's a righteous and fair judge. He shows no partiality, no favoritism. He can do no other way of judgment than this. He is impartial. He does not look at your position. He does not look at your wealth. He does not look at anything you have, your influence, how popular you are, your appearance. He doesn't care that all the people said you were so godly. None of that is in Scripture on the day of judgment. He doesn't take a survey of the whole church to figure out what they thought about you. That's not what he does. He judges impartially. He's not persuaded by any of that. But the person who says they're his, they say they've followed Christ because they truly did. They produced good fruit. Christ was in them, working through them to produce good fruit. Then he will reward them. And Paul's point is that the unbeliever will not, even if they're a Jew, even if they know their Bible, they will not. Think about that. If that's you today, if that's you, you're sitting here, you're listening to me and you're hearing this passage and you know that that's you. Why would you want to continue on? Why wouldn't you repent and turn 
Christ. Turn to him. He's the one that can save your soul. You can't, you can't get there by works. You cannot. You will end up in hell forever. Turn away from this eternal judgment. It's supposed to be scary because it truly is worse than we could ever imagine. People don't like to hear about hell. The average American says, I don't want to hear about it. That's fire and brimstone. They quit going to churches like that. Pastors quit preaching on hell. But it's there. It's there to warn us. It's there to give us a right fear of God. Here's how Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher, summarized this. He said, there's no reckoning up the millions of years and millions of ages in hell. All arithmetic fails here. No rules of multiplication can reach this amount, for there is no end. They shall have nothing to do to pass away their eternity, but to conflict with those torments. This will be their work forever and ever. God shall have no other use or employment for them. This is the way that they must answer the end of their being. And they never shall have any rest or any atonement, but their torments will hold up to their height. We filled up is the idea. Filled up all the way to the height. And shall never grow any easier by their being accustomed to them. Time will seem long to them. Every moment shall seem long to them. But they shall never have done with the ages of their torment. This verse should strike us as Christians. We need to take the gospel to people. That's what Paul's doing right here. He's saying, wake up, here's the bad news. Before he gives them the gospel, here's the bad news. And we can't be scared of the bad news. We tell them the bad news so they realize what kind of state they're in. We tell them about the doctrine of man according to Scripture. And if we're believers, we rejoice that God has saved us out of that. We rejoice that he's even going to give us, who are we to receive rewards in heaven? He prepares them, all the good works we do. He works through us to do them. And who are we to receive any of that? And yet he still gives them to us. So let's thank him for that now. And let's pray for the lost souls that we know that need to repent and believe. Lord, we do come before you just thanking you, just praising you, just being so happy that you have saved us. If we're here in Christ today, if we're united eternally with Jesus Christ our Lord, we are so joyful and happy. Lord, we're so thankful not to have to suffer like we just heard. But we all have loved ones and friends and family members, and children, and people that we know are not saved, that they're going to hell. They may even think they are saved, but they're not. We pray, Lord, that you would work through us somehow. We don't know the, the details, but work through us to give them the gospel, to encourage them, to exhort them, to love them enough to tell them the truth. Let us evangelize the lost. Let's do it for your glory, to the name of Christ.